Uh, but today we return to our series, our, our sermon series, our Sunday teaching series called Snapshots, a study in the Gospel of Luke. And, and what we've said is the Gospel of Luke, kind of this biography of Jesus that a guy named Luke wrote, reads a little bit like an Instagram account. If they had Instagram accounts back then, it would read like an Instagram account or a, or a photo album. You know, you, you flip through this Gospel of Luke and as you read through it, it's just kind of a bunch of snapshots of the life of Jesus that are put together. And the snapshot that we're looking at today is a snapshot that actually doesn't show up in any of the other Gospels. A lot of times you'll get the same story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John or in a combination of those Gospels. But, but this one snapshot from the life of Jesus from when he's 12 years old shows up only in the Gospel of Luke. And so... Uh, if you've been tracking with us, you know that Danielle, and I love what she's done, is she's taken some artist renderings and put these snapshots, actual snapshots. These aren't like real pictures of Jesus, by the way. Um, these aren't real pictures of Jesus, by the way. I'm here all week. Um, but, but hopefully... Hopefully, they, they help us understand and help us even get a little bit of a mental picture as to what's going on in the text. And so, speaking of the text, let's just read from Luke chapter 2, verse 41. What we know so far is, you know, Zechariah and John the Baptist and Elizabeth and Mary and the angels and the shepherds and the manger and all that stuff. And, and here's what happens. Jesus is 12 years old, and this is the only place, in the Gospel of Luke, the only place that this shows up. Let's take a look at this snapshot from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. If you don't have your Bibles, it's up here on the screen. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. I want you to know what's going on here. I'm just going to retell this story to you so we understand what's happening. This is the 15th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. It's right around March or April. And and and. All of the Jews from Jerusalem and from surrounding areas would kind of make pilgrimages to Jerusalem on this 15th day of the month of Nisan to celebrate Passover. 
Remember we talked about Passover a couple weeks ago? This is when uh, the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And, and the 10th plague to kind of convince Pharaoh to go ahead and let my people go was, was God's judgment on the nation of Egypt. And so in order to escape God's judgment, the nation of Israel sacrificed each of them according to God's direction, sacrificed a perfect lamb, and smeared the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their homes. So when God's judgment came through the nation of Egypt, the, the, the judgment of God God passed over their homes. And so the nation of Israel was able to escape God's judgment and they were freed from slavery in Egypt. And so every year they set aside a week and they called it Passover. Makes total sense, right? They call it Passover. And they would worship and celebrate and sacrifice. And all of these Jews from both Jerusalem and all over the place would kind of converge on Jerusalem and people would make pilgrimages there. Days, weeks, sometimes even months to celebrate and worship. And Joseph and Mary, being Jewish, came to Jerusalem for this week-long celebration of Passover. And when Jesus turned 12, the text says, they brought him with, on the journey with them. And so at the end of this week, it's time for everybody to leave and they pack up and they head back to Nazareth and they make a day's journey back. It would have been about 20 miles. The text doesn't tell us that, but, but, but a day's journey back towards Nazareth would have been about 20 miles. And so at the end of the day, now picture this, parents, parents, picture this. End of the day, it's time to eat, it's time to go to bed, you know, you sing a little song and everybody's getting ready and getting in PJs and whatever else. And Mary and Joseph start asking their friends, has anyone seen Jesus? When did we leave him last? When did we see him last? Did you see him? Well, I saw him and I don't know. I thought, you know, he may have been. No. And at some point it dawns on them that they have left the child at 12 years old in Jerusalem. And they've journeyed 20 miles back towards Nazareth. Now, let me ask you this. I know you've done some bad stuff in your life. So have I. Have you ever lost God? Because that's what Joseph and Mary have done. Could you imagine coming like on a communion service like this and having to confess that? God, we lost um, your only kid. Uh, we don't know where. He may, be in, he may be in Jerusalem. We don't know. I mean, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty rough. So this may seem odd to you that they would have lost Jesus. They lost their kids. We tr typically try not to do that, right? Lose their kids. But, but this is not that odd, to be honest with you, because people in that day and age would travel in large groups for like protection and support. So it would have been all the Jews in Nazareth. And it even tells us, did you, did you catch that? The text says that Joseph and Mary searched among their acquaintances and relatives. See, they would have been traveling in a large group of friends and family. A whole bunch of people from Nazareth would have made this pilgrimage. And because it was a large group of people, it was kind of a shared responsibility to watch over kids. And so Jesus could have been with that family, could have been with this family, could have been running around. They would have all shared that responsibility together. When Amy and I were just back in Phoenix, we were over at my brother's house, my brother and his wife, um, she has type 1 diabetes. My brother's wife does. They had four boys, and the doctors told them, look, no more kids because, you know, 
you, you know, it's not going to be good for your health. It's not going to be good for your body. Four is enough. And she said, boo on you, I can adopt. So now she's adopted another one, and they've got five, and, and maybe more are coming. I don't know. And then the people across the street, they're, they're best friends. My brother and his wife, they're, they're best friends, and they have three. So there's eight kids and four parents. They are very much outnumbered, right? It's zone defense at that point. And, and kids are running back between houses. It's kind of a shared responsibility to parent. And so, you know, my brother's oldest is 12, and, you know, who knows where he is? He could be across the street at Eric's house. He could be at my brother's house. He could be on the roof, whatever it is. It's a shared responsibility. Grandparents, aunts and uncles, everybody shares that responsibility. So Joseph and Mary just assume that he's with another family. Totally, uh, totally reasonable assumption. So Jesus, again, as a 12-year-old boy, would have been able to kind of travel because he would have been the other, he would have been uh, older, one of the older kids. It was very normal. And everyone expected that he would find his way back to his family, but he doesn't this time. And by the time that they realize that Jesus is not with them, they've journeyed a full day away from Jerusalem back toward Nazareth, and it's dark. So going back to Jerusalem is not safe, so they have to sleep a full night and wait till first light to get up and go back to Jerusalem to look for their kid. Parents, would this not have been a sleepless night for Joseph and Mary? So they get up the next morning at first light and they head back to Jerusalem, 20 miles, give or take. They head back toward Jerusalem to find their child. But again, they've journeyed now a full day back towards Jerusalem. And so it's dark when they get there and the city's kind of shut down and there's nobody milling about and everybody's kind of tucked away, you know, children all nestled snug in their beds, right? And so they can't look for Jesus and so they've got to sleep another night. That's why the text says on the third day they found him in the temple. And what is he doing? Verse 46 tells us that he's asking questions. This is going to become very critical for us here in a few moments. He's asking questions. Now Mary looks at her child in the temple and asks the question that probably every other mom in this room would ask of their child if they stayed at Canada's Wonderland for two days just hanging out. Why have you treated us like this, is what Mary said. Look at verse 48. Son, why have you treated us so? She's asking Jesus, how could you do this to me and your father? We've been worried sick. Does anyone watch The Big Bang Theory? Do you watch The Big Bang Theory? Anybody watch that show? Okay, there's a character on that show named Howard Wolowitz. He's Jewish. He has a Jewish mother that you never see. You just hear her voice. Mary would have been a Jewish mother. And so I picture her voice sounding like this to Jesus. How could you do this to me and your father? We've been worried sick. That's how I picture that happening. Now, we don't know if she sounded like that. That's just me, okay? That's how I picture this happening. And in verse 49, in response to his mother's question to him, Jesus speaks for the very first time in the book of Luke. Check that out. He hasn't talked yet in this book. Mary, Joseph, Zachariah, Elizabeth, he hasn't spoken yet. Verse 49, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus' response here to his parents is very interesting. First, he's actually a little surprised that they're worried, right? He's especially surprised that they felt like they needed to look for him. In his opinion, they should have known he was safe in the temple. That's his opinion. 
Second, Jesus chooses a very interesting word here that's going to become critical for us today. Look, look up here on the screen. It says, uh, why were you looking for me? Go back one slide. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? In the original language in the Greek, that's dei, and it indicates God's sovereignty. So Jesus isn't telling his parents, it's a fact that I should be here, that I would be here. What he's telling them is, it's a necessity. It had to be. I must be. It was God's design, God's purpose, God's sovereignty that has me here. And not only does he say that he must be in his father's house, he calls the temple his father's house. Now that seems a little odd to me since his earthly adoptive dad, Joseph, is standing right there. Why is Jesus called the temple his father's house? You want to know why? Because he knows who his heavenly father is, Yahweh. And it would have been really odd for anybody to call God father. Sometimes we, call, we pray, we call heavenly father and dear father and all that stuff. We call God father now. But that would have been really odd 2,000 years ago in first century Jerusalem. Jesus says, I am in my father's house. Here's what Jesus is telling us by his response. He is already very aware of who he is and what he came to do. He must be in his father's house. He knows the steps of his life are not random, but they are directed by a God with whom he has a very unique relationship. And he honors Joseph and he obeys Joseph, his earthly adoptive dad, but Jesus is confident that he is in his father's house. Let's finish the story. Verse 50 tells us that Joseph and Mary were confused by Jesus' confident statements regarding his relationship with Yahweh as well they should be. Because <laughs> no one would have said the things that he just said. They head back towards Nazareth. It says that they had headed up to Jerusalem. They head down towards Nazareth. Even though Nazareth was north of Jerusalem, they're headed up and down in altitude. So they go up to Jerusalem and down in altitude back to Nazareth. It says that Jesus is submissive. He's obedient to both of his parents. Mary continues to treasure these things up in her heart. Remember, we've already seen that phrase once, right? When Gabriel announced to Mary that she would become pregnant and that she would have a son and call his name Jesus, it says that Mary treasured all all these things up in her heart. Now she's treasuring this up in her heart. She's storing it away. It, it, for you engineers, she's collecting some data points, isn't she? And she's putting them together and going, wow, this kid is different. He is cut from a different cloth. And Jesus grows physically, spiritually, and in maturity. Now, what can we learn? from this interaction? What can we learn from this snapshot from the life of Jesus? And I want to pull a couple of points of application from this snapshot and from the life of Jesus from the book of Luke. Two, for parents or wannabe parents or grandparents, and two, for just interpersonal relationships and interacting with one another. So parents, I want to start with you. And you might be thinking as a parent, I don't know that I can learn a lot from a parent who lost their kid. In fact, I don't know that I can learn a lot from a parent who lost God as their kid. I mean, that seems a little bit odd to me. But check this out. Joseph and Mary raised a perfect kid, didn't they? <laughs> perfect kid. 
And they had a head start, I get that, because Jesus was God in the flesh, I get that. But the Bible says that he was tempted in every way, but he did not sin. He's able to sympathize with all of our weakness because he was tempted in every way, but did not sin. We've got to give Joseph and Mary a little bit of credit here. And even though they lost him, they went back and got him, all right? So let's just show them a little bit of grace and learn a little bit from their parenting. In order to wrap our heads around what's going on with them, what's going on in their family, and the way that they're parenting their son right now, we've got to understand a little bit about Passover. Again, Passover was a week-long celebration of worship and sacrifice that happened in Jerusalem. And the only folks that were obligated as Jews to show up as at Passover were males over the age of 13. That's when they would have had their bar mitzvah at the age of 13 and kind of their coming of age and they would have been responsible for their own actions and only males were required to go. Everybody get that? Only males over 13. But look back at verse 41 and 42. Look how Luke launches this snapshot from the life of Jesus. He writes this, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover and when he was 12 years old, They went up according to custom. Why would Luke be specific about both parents and Jesus being 12 years old going to Jerusalem for Passover? One, he wants us to know that not just the male head of household, which would have been Joseph, went to Passover, but Mary went with him. And not only did Mary go with them, they went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. This was a very devout family. They were devoted to the worship of Yahweh. And before Jesus was 13 years old, when he's 12, they bring him along to Passover with them to instruct him, to teach him, to give him an experience of Passover, an experience of worship, an experience of God, so that when he was old enough to participate, he would have a little bit of context for what he was doing. In other words, Joseph and Mary are teaching their child to be devoted to God. Parents, it is good to teach your children to be devoted to God. Parents, it is good to teach your children to be devoted to God. And some of you might think to yourself, wow, that seems very basic and very simple. Every Sunday morning, I make my kids go to church. That's not what I'm talking about. Or every year when when youth camp comes around, I make my kids go. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about attendance. I'm not talking about forcing religion down a kid's throat. What I'm talking about is sharing worship experiences with your children. This is not what Joseph and Mary are doing, teaching Jesus to check off a box. Yes, I went to Passover this year. I actually went when I was 12, before I was even obligated to go. Aren't I a good little kid? That's not what they're teaching him to do. They're bringing him to Jerusalem so that they might experience a worship moment together. When's the last time you did that with your kids? That you brought them along with you so that you could experience a worship moment together. So that you could teach them devotion to Yahweh. When's the last time you sat down with your teen and said, Hey, what are the names names of a couple of kids that you know in your class that don't know Jesus? Let's pray for them together by name. That's teaching your kids devotion to Yahweh. When's the last time you sat down before a family meal and said, we're going to have a devotion together. I'm not going to force it down your throat. We're just going to open up the Bible and we are going to learn to be devoted to Yahweh. Some of my favorite experiences growing up was just before a meal, my mom would open up her Bible and we would just have a family devotion together. She was teaching us devotion, not religion. 
devotion. What, what about today? It's communion Sunday today. We're going to take communion at the end of the service. I love baby kids. I love what's going on in our children's ministry. I love what's going on up in our junior high ministry. I want you to know that you're always welcome to bring your kids in here if you choose to do that. That's up to you. That's not our call. That's your call. And even on communion Sunday. And maybe, just maybe, your kids have not made a personal decision to follow Jesus. And so partaking in communion and participating in communion wouldn't be for them. Just like Jesus was 12 years old, not 13, so participation in Passover wouldn't be for him yet. But his his parents brought him along with them to say, experience this with us. See this. Watch this. Learn who Jesus is. Learn who God is. Could you imagine that? Wrapping your arm around your kid and going, I just want you to share in this moment. You have not made a personal decision to follow Jesus with your life. You've not said yes to him yet, so communion is not for you. But here's why mom takes this bread and this cup here's why dad takes this bread and this cup is because we are devoted to Yahweh and we want the same for you too teach your kids to be devoted to God but I want you to know this because Mary knows this too that devotion is always best when it's coupled with grace teaching kids devotion is best when it's coupled with grace I'll say it this way, Mary knows that sometimes kids need correction, discipline, and reprimand, but sometimes they just need grace. So in this case, her child that did not sin, her perfect child, did not need correction, discipline, or reprimand, even though he did something a little odd and a little inconvenient for them. He just needed grace. Look at verse 48. When Joseph and Mary finally find this lost kid, look at the way that they respond to him. It says, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, Mary could have gone a little ballistic on her kid, right? Like, he knew what time it was. You know, it's time to leave and everybody's leaving. And he just stuck around at the temple. Mary could have gone ballistic on him. Where have you been, you little... Right? I can't believe you would be this irresponsible. We didn't bring you up here with us because it was good for our health. We did it because we love you and we wanted something good for you. But look how horribly you've behaved. You've embarrassed us in front of family and friends. You are grounded, Jesus, for like ever. Right? But she doesn't respond that way. She responds with tenderness, with love, with grace. She says, we've been looking all over for you. We love you. We were worried sick. Here's what we learn. Sometimes kids need discipline, don't they? Sometimes their behavior's out of line. Sometimes it's inappropriate. Sometimes it's even dangerous to them or to others. But sometimes they just need grace. Sometimes their behavior isn't inappropriate. Sometimes they don't need discipline. Sometimes their behavior is just weird. It's odd. It's bizarre. You know your kids. They're weird. Just like mine's, no, she's not going to be weird. Yours are, but mine is, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) But sometimes weird behavior is based on God's unique design for your child. Just as Jesus' behavior was rooted in God's unique design for him. 
that behavior was a little bit odd and quite inconvenient, wasn't it? But it was based on, rooted in, God's unique design for Jesus. And sometimes when your kids behave in ways that you don't quite understand, it's not that they need reprimand or discipline or correction. They just need your grace. They just need you to understand. They just need you to connect with them and love them. Your children don't always need correction or reprimand. They need grace. I learned this on my flight uh, back here. Uh, I, I, I was sitting in a seat. It was great because uh, as I came into the airport in Phoenix, I saw this family, uh, two white parents and two white boys and, and an adopted uh, black girl. So because I have an adopted black girl, like my heart connected with them. And I was like, wow, what a, what a wonderful family. What a lovely family. It was very early in the morning in my flight back here. Very early in the morning. So we get on the plane and... Um, everybody's boarded, I'm like the last one to board, and, and here I am sitting right next to this family that I saw in the airport. I'm like, that's very cool, they're on my flight, isn't that great? And so it's the two parents and their little girl uh, across the aisle from me, and then their two little boys, and I'm in the window seat, okay? Then there's a little boy behind me, and then there's a little boy directly in front of me. So I'm starting to do the math here and going, okay. So the first thing that happens is these two little boys next to me, uh, members of this family with the little little girl that they adopted, who I already love them, right? I already love them. They fall asleep. I'm like, great, I can do that. Awesome. The kid behind me, his parents fall asleep, and he starts kicking my seat. And not just like kicking my seat, like boom, like hitting my seat, right? like this, boom. So after the first couple of kicks, I'm going, okay, how do I do this? His parents are sleeping, whatever. And just as I'm kind of deciding what to do and how to respond to this kid behind me, the sleeping child beside me, and I don't know like how to say this in the correct way, but the sleeping child beside me, this little boy, starts to pass gas. (laughs) Like, like loudly. Like, like, like foghorn type of stuff, you know? And as I'm trying to like manage this part and, and Ronaldo is still kicking my seat behind me, you know, and, and I got this thing happening and, you know, I, he, he kicks one more time and this time, I mean, apparently he had a free kick or something because he just, he came, and I, like, I kind of get whiplash going forward. And so just as I'm about to stand up and turn around to these parents and say, hey, look, I'm very sorry to wake you, but your child continues to kick my seat. I don't know if he's like playing a soccer video game or something and he's, you know, he's trying to whatever, but like, could you help me out here? So just as I stand up to do that, um, something else transpires. Okay, so remember, I got Ronaldo behind me and Toots Magoo beside me. And, and I'm going to share these thoughts with you because they happen in rapid succession. And like, I'm not sure which one, like where one stops and the other one starts. But here's what happens. I hear something directly in front of me that does not sound good. And just as I hear it, I feel something hit my shoe. And then I look down and there are jelly beans all over the floor. And I think this child in front of me has poured jelly beans out all over the floor. And just as my mind thinks that, I hear his mother say, I told you you shouldn't have eaten all those jelly beans. (laughs) So Ronaldo, 
Toots Magoo and Jelly Bean Thrower Upper in front of me on this plane. Look, I'm just, I'm going to tell you right now, if your kid is kicking someone's seat on an airplane, they need correction or reprimand quickly, all right, especially if it's my seat. But look, I don't know, maybe, maybe God designed him to be a soccer player. I don't know. Maybe God designed Toots Magoo to be a gluten-free chef. I'm not sure, okay? I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know what's going on with Jelly Bean Boy. Like, maybe, maybe they don't need correction or reprimand. Maybe they just need grace. Maybe they're just behaving like kids. Maybe they're just behaving the way that God designed them to behave. Like, this one, of course, was. Very great digestive system, working perfect. Look, at. I, it's funny, but, but look, some of your kids are introverts. And so when they disappear to their room, they're not misbehaving. They're just behaving the way God designed them. Some of your kids are extroverts. Some of your kids are natural leaders. That's why the way, the way God gifted them. Some of your kids are followers. Some of your kids are artists and singers. Some of your kids can't carry a tune in a bucket. Some of your kids are great athletes. Some of them look like a baby deer on roller skates. I mean, they're just... They're different. They're different, and, and they're not doing anything wrong. Some, some of them are free spirits. Some of them are really passionate. Some are extremely measured with their behavior. Some are intuitive. Some are sensitive. God has designed them in different ways, just like God designed Jesus at 12 years old to stick around in his father's house and hang out. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He didn't need correction or reprimand. He just needed grace. He needed care, he needed concern, he needed a parent to understand what was going on. As your kids grow and figure out their unique design, they may do some weird stuff or some stuff that's a bit inconvenient, and just like Jesus did, they need a tender parent who understands that their behavior isn't sinful, it's just a part of who they are. Sometimes your kids need correction, sometimes they just need grace. Two principles for interpersonal relationships. I'm checking time here so I make sure I'm not running more than about 45 minutes over. Um, Two principles for interpersonal relationships. The first principle comes out of what Joseph and Mary find Jesus doing in the temple. We've left parenting now. You got some parenting stuff. Teach your kids to be devoted. Show them grace. Okay. Now we're just talking about how we interact with one another. Interpersonal relationships. So again, the first principle comes out of what Joseph and Mary find Jesus doing in the temple. Now a lot of folks might tell you the way that they relate this story. I've heard this story told this way a thousand times. That Joseph and Mary come back and they find their child, Jesus, at 12 years old, teaching the teachers in the temple. And they were all amazed at all the wonderful things that he had to say. You know that's absolutely not what the text says. It comes from apocryphal gospels, which were fictitious accounts of the life of Jesus. They're not included here because they were written by people who didn't really know him like three, four hundred years after he actually disappeared from the scene. That's, that's where that concept of Jesus teaching the teachers comes from. But that might be what we would expect, right? I mean, he's God in the flesh, he's Jesus. We would expect him to know some stuff and teach the teachers, but that's not what he was doing. Look at verse 46. What was he doing? After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. He was listening and asking questions. Again, first time that Jesus speaks in the book of Luke, what is he doing? He's listening and asking questions. What Jesus is doing here is not complicated. He's simply listening and asking questions. And check it out. The teachers are amazed at how smart he is. They are amazed at his wisdom. Can you believe that? All he's doing is asking questions. 
Just asking questions. The truth is that this was Jesus' modus operandi throughout his entire ministry. He was great at asking great questions. What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? If David calls him Lord, how could he be his son? Which is the first and greatest commandment? Who is my neighbor? Jesus asks all these questions. Great questions. And in just about every case where Jesus asked a great question, the individual or the group that was listening was amazed at his wisdom. In other words, here's what we learn. You want to be the smartest guy in the room? Learn to listen and ask great questions. You want to be the smartest guy in the room? Learn to listen and ask great questions. It's bottom line truth number one when it comes to interpersonal relationships. It's up here on the screen. Learn to listen and ask great questions. This applies in every area of life. I was at a leadership training thing several weeks ago with a bunch of businessmen in the greater Toronto area. There was a sales guy, about 100, 150 guys in this room, sales guy that worked for like Fortune 100 companies talking about sales. For 60 minutes, he talked about how to ask great questions when it comes to sales. Amy and I, when we were, when we were back in Phoenix, uh, we had some family members in conflict with one another, and they called us to mediate, you know. And I, so I'm like, I, I'm, I'm on vacation. I'm not on the clock. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I said, yeah, let's meet. Let's meet. Let's go have coffee. Let's go sit down at Starbucks. So Amy and I sit down with these two family members that are in conflict with one another. And for three hours, we sat and chatted with them. And at the end of the three hours, it's tears and it's hugs, and you guys are wonderful. And you're so, um, you know, we're amazed at your wisdom and amazed at how smart you are. You know what we did? We asked questions. For three hours, we just asked questions. Will you tell me about the last time that you got angry with him? Oh, yeah, and then they would tell us. Did you experience that in the same way? Well, how did you feel when she said this? Or how did you feel when, when you said you would do that but didn't do that? Or uh, you, you said you would do that, and why didn't you do that? And how did you feel when he didn't do that? That's all we did. We were the smartest people at the table. There were only five of us, so it's not that big a deal. But we are the smartest people at the table. And all we did was ask great questions. My mom, she had learned to listen and ask great questions. She's the assistant superintendent of human resources for one of the largest school districts in the state of Arizona. And she asked great questions. People in HR, I don't like you because you always get your way just by asking questions. FYI, it's my mom too, so relax. Okay, so here's, so here's what my mom did. We came here to interview for a week to Bayview Glen. And then we came back, and I preached that week. And you guys remember me preaching that one weekend, like in June of last year, or whenever it was? And my mom, Amy and I came, and my mom came with us. I don't know who brings their mom to a job interview, but I do, all right? I'm in therapy, working this stuff out. It's fine, okay? So we go back to the hotel that night where we were staying after preaching, and it's like decision time, right? It's cri- this is critical time, and Amy and I are just processing thoughts and emotions and feelings, what we're going, and we're talking to my mom, and my mom's just listening, 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 and then she drops this on me. Luke, if you said no, what would be your reasons for saying no? It's a great question. And I was done. It was over. And, and I was able to pursue God's will for me and go after this position and this, this ministry, this opportunity that I knew God was calling me to. And you know what the critical moment for me was my mom asking a great question. Learn to listen and ask great questions. I want to give you three that I find really helpful. Just three. You just put them in your pocket. Just have them to pull out whenever you need them. Okay? One, if I could draw a door on this stage, 
if I could draw, like literally draw a door, and there was a door on this stage, and you could open that door, and on the other side of that door could be anything you wanted. It could be another point in time. It could be a person. It, it, it could be a, a it could be multiple people. It could be Barbados. It could be whatever you want. You open that door. Whatever you want is on the other side. What do you want on the other side of that door? I think that's a great question on getting to know somebody. I've had people answer that question all kinds of different ways. Like, I would like Barbados on the other side of that door. Hey, is your job stressful right now? Isn't that interesting? You know what I would like on the other side of that door is a couple years ago I lost my parents or I lost my spouse to cancer. I, I, I would love for that person to be on the other side of that door. Hey, would you mind telling me a little bit about your dad or about your spouse that you lost? It's a great question. I've had people answer that a whole bunch of different ways. It's a great question to get to know people. If it works for you, great. I love it. It works for me. How about this one? When you think someone is, and I'm trying to figure out how to say this delicately, when you think someone is embarrassing themselves by how wrong they are. You ever feel that way? Is that a delicate way to say that? Not really, is it? It's not. It's not very polite, not very Canadian. But sometimes I think that. I'm like, you're embarrassing yourself right now. And it's not polite to say, you're embarrassing yourself right now by how wrong you are. It's not polite to say that. You know what is polite to say? Could you help me understand? Could you help me understand why you think that way? Because we're seeing this differently, you and I. And, and I don't think you're right, and you don't have to say that, but would you help me understand what, 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 what information, what experiences are kind, of, are kind of making you view this situation differently than me? Learn to ask that question. Just could you help me understand? Could you help me understand? I, I'm in the dark here a little bit. Will you help me understand? How about this one? What do you think about fill in the blank? That's a real easy one. What do you think about whatever? What do you think about what's been going on in Paris the last week or so? What do you think about the weather? What do you think about Rob Ford? What do you think about the Maple Leafs? What do you think about, I don't know. And we're not trying to start fights here. Just what do you think about? Easy question. Easy question. Learn to listen and ask great questions. We're going to do this one really quickly. We're going to run this last one really quickly because we're quickly running out of time here and we want to make sure we have plenty of time to just do the Lord's table and do it kind of in, in, in just a, in a paced way. The, the last principle, uh, first principle for interpersonal relationships is learn to listen and ask great questions. The second principle is called containment. Containment. Now, now, I want to show you my definition of containment, and then we're going to see it in the text here. Here's my definition of containment. It's the choice to refrain from sharing your opinion or thoughts, even if you're right, because what you have to say won't be helpful. The choice to refrain from sharing your opinion or thoughts, even if you're right, because what you have to say won't be helpful. This is God in the flesh in his Father's house. He does not assert his rights. He does not boast in his position. He does not speak his mind, even though he would have been right. Why? Because it would not have been helpful. He refrains. He shows containment. He listens and asks questions. 
When his mom shows up and goes, we've been worried sick about you. Where have you been? He could have responded with, look, I am pre-existent God in the flesh. I am in my father's house. I know who I am and what I came to do. I was here when all this was created, even the ground that it sits on. Not only that, it was created for me and by me and through me. I will let you know when I am ready to leave. But he doesn't. He shows containment. Why? Because it would have been false? No. No, all that I said was true, right? And Jesus knows all these things. He knows he's in his father's house. He knows that he must be there, that it was God's design and God's purpose for him to be there. And he is confidently in the house of Yahweh. So everything that I just said, that hypothetical response, it all would have been true, but it would not have been helpful. So he shows containment. He withholds information, opinions, or thoughts even if it's true, because it wouldn't be helpful. You want a really brief definition of containment? I love, Amy tells me this all the time. Luke, just because it's true doesn't mean it's okay to say out loud. Some of you who know me go, yeah, I wish you would take that advice more often. But she says, just because it's true doesn't mean it's okay to say out loud. And we learn this from Jesus. He shows containment. We teach our kids this all the time, don't we? Like in the grocery store when your kid looks at you and go, wow, mommy, that guy really has a lot of hair in his nose. You know, it's like, it's true, but it doesn't mean it's okay to say out loud, right? But we could learn this principle that we teach our children. We could learn this principle that we see in the life of Jesus for ourselves when we're in the heat of an argument. We might say something true to our spouse or to our kids or to our coworkers or to our friends, but are those things constructive and helpful? Show some containment. Just because it's true doesn't mean it's okay to say out loud. Maybe you're in a conversation and you would really like that other person to know how smart you are or who you know or where you've been. But just because that information is true doesn't mean it's helpful. Show some containment. Learn to listen and ask questions. Or what about gossip? Especially in the church, gossip in the church. And, And we disguise gossip in a Trojan horse called, will you pray for that person, don't we? Will you pray for her? She sleeps around a lot. You know. Will you pray for him? He just can't hold a job. That's called gossip. That's not will you pray. That's gossip. And maybe, maybe that information is true. I don't know. I don't know. But is it constructive? Is it helpful? Is it okay to say out loud? No. Show some containment. Withhold your opinion or your thoughts at times, not always, but at times, even if you're right. Even if you're the rightest person in the room, like Jesus was at 12 years old, show some containment. It's the ability to discern what's helpful and choose silence when that's the most helpful option. Parents, teach your kids to be devoted to God, but do so with grace. Learn to understand they don't always need correction or reprimand. They're just behaving the way God's designed them to behave. Show them a little bit of grace. Men and women of God, when it comes to interpersonal relationships, when it comes to interacting with one another, learn to listen and ask great questions. And let's together learn a little bit of containment. Take an example from Jesus from the snapshot 
in his life of when he was 12 years old. As we conclude our service today, I'm going to ask the ushers to stand. I'm going to ask Brad to come back up. He's going to lead us in a song of conclusion here. Ushers are going to stand and go to the back and and pick up those elements. Check this out now. Listen close. Jesus is 12 years old in the temple celebrating his very first Passover with his family. And about 20 years later, he would be with his disciples back in Jerusalem celebrating Passover once again for the very last time. And the night before he was betrayed, he was celebrating that Passover meal with his disciples. And in the middle of the meal, he did something unexpected. He did something that they, that they, that they would have found a little bit odd, probably a lot odd. He, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, take and eat. And when you do, remember me. Could you imagine someone who's standing right there telling you to remember them? Seems odd, doesn't it? But in just a few short hours, the disciples would know why Jesus said, remember me. Because at that moment, they would have thought, all we have left is a memory. And then after dinner, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take and drink. This cup represents my blood that's shed for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And for 2,000 years... The church has been celebrating that meal together called communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. We've been remembering Jesus. We've been remembering that his body was crucified on that cross. His blood was shed on that cross for us. It was our body that should have been broken, and his was. It was our blood that should have been shed, and his was. And three days later, he rose to new life. Out of the tomb, he was very dead, most definitely dead, and physically raised. He doesn't like live on in our hearts because like we do his teachings. Like he really is out of the tomb and it's really empty. And he really sits at the right hand of the Father. And so every time we do this, we proclaim that until he comes again. Now, we've already kind of invited God to kind of search us and know us and test us, and we've confessed sin to him. But I want you to know that the Bible says that that that's super important right before we do this. So as Brad plays, I just invite you to listen. You can sing along if you want. The words will be up here on the screen. But I just invite you to bow your head. Again, just close your eyes just between you and God and let him search you. Confess any known sin. The ushers are going to distribute those elements. I invite you to just take a little piece of bread and a little cup hold them and we'll celebrate and partake in just a few moments ushers if you would come forward and serve us and let me pray God quiet our hearts now turn our eyes to you God just in your grace and tenderness would you draw us near as we remember body that was given for us and the blood that was shed for us. In Christ's name, amen.